This is Quotations, a podcast about words, written and spoken throughout history. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, we shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. No matter where you're from, your dreams are valid. The Pale Blue Dot, the only home we've ever known. Hello and welcome to Quotations. I'm Matthew Monroe. Here's today's poem. Quote, I will take my trouble and wrap it in a blue handkerchief and carry it down to the sea. The sea is as smooth as silk, is as silent as glass. It does not even whisper. Only the boats, rowed out by the girls in yellow, ruffle its surface. It is gray, not blue. It is flecked with boats like midges, with happy people moving soundlessly over the level water. I will take my trouble and drop it into the water. It is heavy as stone and smooth as a sea-washed pebble. It will sink under the sea, and the happy people will row over it quietly, ruffling the clear water. Little dark boats like midges, skimming silently, will pass backwards and forwards, the girls singing. They will never know that they have sailed above sorrow. Sink heavily and lie still. Lie still, my trouble. End quote. And this is a little-known poem by poet Winifred Holpe. Holpe was born June 23, 1898, in Rudston, England. She died September 29, 1935, in London, at the age of 37. She grew up and was educated in England, and joined the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps during World War I. After the war, she returned home from France and turned to the task of becoming a writer. She published a number of books and wrote for more than 20 newspapers the latter of which she's far better known for than the former. She was also a strong feminist, though uh, I guess what you would call a begrudging one. She made that pretty clear in 1926 in a quote that I like a lot, where she said, quote, Personally, I am a feminist, because I dislike everything that feminism implies. I want to be about the work in which my real interests lie. But, while injustice is done and opportunities denied to the great majority of women, I shall have to be a feminist. End quote. Which I think is pretty cool, right? Basically what she's saying is that she'd rather be worrying about other things, but so long as women continue to be treated unjustly, she must continue to be a feminist. And today's poem comes from a publication called Time and Tide. And this publication was originally founded to provide political commentary and articles from a feminist perspective. And this, of course, appealed to Holtby, who was a member of its board in the 1920s. This poem itself was published in 1933 during what is called the Interwar Period, which falls, conveniently, between World War I and World War II. Time and Tide, along with its equal rights organization called the Six Point Group, published regular magazines of 24 pages in length. And the Six Point Group was called so because it advocated for six main legislative efforts. For child assault, the unmarried mother and her child, the widowed mother, the guardianship of infants, equality in the civil service, and equality of teacher's pay. And I'm going to read the poem again for you, as I always do. But first, let me remind you of the questions that we routinely apply to conduct our explication, which I pulled from the UNC Chapel Hill Writing Center a few years ago. And, as I've come to find out, sadly, they've taken down and replaced with something that I'd argue is not quite as useful for us here. But, that being said, we'll still apply the same rules that UNC Chapel Hill once advocated for, for anyone conducting a poetry explication. Those questions are, one, what is being dramatized? Two, who is speaking? Three, what happens in the poem? Four, when does the action take place? Five, 
where is the speaker? And six, why does the speaker choose now to speak? With that in mind, let me read the poem for you one more time, keeping in mind those questions, or perhaps just one of those questions, to think about as I read through this again. Quote, I will take my trouble and wrap it in a blue handkerchief, and carry it down to the sea. The sea is as smooth as silk, is as silent as glass. It does not even whisper. Only the boats, rowed out by the girls in yellow, ruffle its surface. It is gray, not blue. It is flecked with boats like midges, with happy people, moving soundlessly over the level water. I will take my trouble and drop it into the water. It is heavy as stone and smooth as a sea-washed pebble. It will sink under the sea, and the happy people will row over it quietly, ruffling the clear water. Little dark boats like midges, skimming silently, will pass backwards and forwards. The girls singing. They will never know that they have sailed above sorrow. Sink heavily and lie still. Lie still, my trouble. End quote. And the first thing you probably notice is an acute lack of rhyming couplets. For those of you that aren't familiar, an example of that would be Juliet's famous line to Romeo. Parting is such sweet sorrow that I shall say goodnight till it be morrow. This poem doesn't have those, so structurally to me it feels more loose, more free-flowing, less metered. And that matters because, in my mind, the poem more closely mimics the life it describes. Our lives are not static and piecemeal and predictable. They flow, and sometimes they flow fast, sometimes they flow slowly. So, too, with this poem, I suppose, while it's not one of the six questions we usually ask, in this particular case, I suspect it is a deliberate use by Holpe to match the format to the subject, and I appreciate that. And one of the things that I don't usually go over with this, but that the original poetry explication walkthrough that UNC Chapel Hill published is looking at the rhyming scheme. And in this case, there is no rhyming scheme. It is a very free-flowing, prose-based poem. And it certainly has its poetic aspects. You can certainly hear that as I read through the poem. But it doesn't have your standard first and second or first and third lines rhyme with each other type of structure. With that in mind, let's move on to the questions at hand. First, what is being dramatized? Well, if you're like me, you have a default image in your mind of a number of things that pop into your consciousness when you hear them spoken. Then what I mean by that is, in this case, the poem is about the sea, makes reference to the sea. As you know, I attended a maritime school for my undergraduate, so I've seen a fair amount of the sea, right? In my mind, for whatever reason, always snaps to Boston Harbor. And I visited there while I was in school. That is what where my mind goes when I hear the term the sea. I picture that harbor. What we have here is what I assume to be a woman, though the poem doesn't explicitly say, right? There is no reference to gender anywhere in the poem. Approaching the shoreline with a blue handkerchief in one hand and her trouble in the other. Right? And trouble in my notes, I put this down as in quotation marks, because she talks about her trouble, which we know, of course, is not a physical thing, but in a lot of ways it can feel physical, depending on how bad that trouble is for us, or how difficult or challenging that trouble is. And I imagine the trouble in this case to be like a smooth stone. She references smooth later on, smooth as a stone. So I picture a stone in one hand and a blue handkerchief in the other. This stone is, a, is the size of, I don't know, a peach pit or a small, small rock, and as she walks, she places the stone from one hand into the handkerchief held in the other, and she ties the four corners together, and she makes a nice little bundle. 
which she then drops into the water and watches it fade from view as it sinks. And you should be able to picture this. I mean, this is a pretty standard idea. We've all dropped things into water before, especially deep water, and you watch it as it fades from your field of view and is gone. And that's what she's doing here. I mean, that is the the very literal interpretation, almost word for word, what the speaker is referencing as this person. Again, it's a, it's a woman in my mind, but it doesn't have to be, is going about the, the process of getting rid of these troubles. This is, of course, all imagined and symbolic, because trouble is not, of course, as I mentioned, a stone in the literal sense. But the release of trouble into the sea that swallows it up is an analogy to the difficult idea to conceptualize releasing of whatever it is that ails us. The speaker equates it to a stone dropped into the ocean. I think that's a fair way to, to picture it, and, and it's useful for us. So let's move on to question number two. Who is speaking? And this, unlike some poems, is pretty self-evident. The woman, again in my mind, discarding her troubles, is speaking. We can tell through the use of the possessive word my that she uses when referring to the trouble itself. It is her trouble. She is taking that trouble, which is hers and hers alone, down to the sea to get rid of it. And there's not a lot of na analysis to be done here. This is just a woman or a man with some troubles tossing them into the sea and telling us about it. So let's move on to the next question. What happens in the poem? Well, as the speaker states, the water is calm. It's large. I mean, it's the sea, after all. And it is, for nearly all of us, the largest thing that we will ever encounter. We can visualize the moon and the sun, but we can actually literally physically reach out and touch the sea. And it's enormous. The moon is a long way off. The sun is even further off. And while those are both huge, especially in comparison to Earth, the largest thing that we will probably encounter in our lives that we can tangibly see the vastness and greatness of, is the sea or the ocean somewhere. So the speaker references the boats. She refers to them as like midges on its surface, implying a petiteness and a delicacy to those boats, further emphasizing the size of the sea that she's approaching. And the speaker drops her trouble stone wrapped in a blue cloth to the bottom. And I read this poem a number of times before I came to this, but it begs an interesting question. Why wrap it at all? It's the weight of the trouble that carries it to the bottom. So why not just drop that? Why wrap it in a cloth? Why go through the ritual of wrapping it in a cloth and then dropping it in the sea? Why not just drop the stone itself? And I think, and I may be psychoanalyzing a little too much here, I think there are two reasons. The first is that it's symbolic of the recognition of trouble both collecting and bundling it all together. Perhaps I'm wrong in my visualization of this, that this is one stone placed into a handkerchief and then wrapped and dropped into the seat. Perhaps this is a collection of small stones. Maybe there are many of these. We all have many troubles. This doesn't seem far-fetched. So the speaker could be taking many small troubles, each individual stones, maybe pebbles is a good analogy, and dropping them all into this handkerchief to collect them all in one place and then wrapping them and dropping them into the sea. If we're comparing this to life itself, that's probably more accurate. right? Sometimes there are singular, large, individual troubles that we have to deal with. Maybe that's what she's talking about here. Maybe it's a particularly traumatic incident that the speaker is dealing with. But it could also be that she's just saying, you know what, I have let life's troubles, plural, in general, bother me long enough that it's time for me to take these, collect them, package them, and be rid of them. 
And second, I think the blue cloth specifically is going to make it disappear from view more quickly in the water, right? What water we associate with the color blue, most of the time it is, unless you're dealing with some weird situation, some small ponds or some dirty water, it's blue. So wrapping it in a blue handkerchief makes sense if you want to be rid of it sooner. And who doesn't want that with their troubles, right? For them literally to be gone as quickly as possible. So that could be the other reason why. Thus, the blue cloth. And as the poem mentions, after the stone departs, or sinks, boats float backwards and forwards over the stone. And to me, this implies that as soon as troubles descend into the depths, cast away from their former carrier, the world around us will provide other things to take our focus from them. We don't need to continue to search the depths, trying to penetrate the deep and see where our troubles have gone, but instead we can look out at the other boats on the surface being rowed by, quote, happy people. And there's also this sense of longing in the tone of the speaker, as if the ridding of troubles into the sea is part of a desire to be in the boat, maybe, to be happy, to be on the water, instead of staring at it from afar. So we have this detached speaker standing on the shoreline, holding this trouble, and dropping it into the, into the sea. And then looking out and seeing all these people, happy people, on the boat, and longing to be out there with them. There's a separation there. That's deliberate. She's not on the boat dropping the stone. She's standing on the shore, looking out at the boats, as if to say, I wish I could be there, but for this trouble, as a happy person, with other happy people floating over these sorrows, if I could just only get rid of this. That's a powerful way to look at these things, to understand that trouble separates us, potentially, in life from things that we wish we were doing. And we all know this. We all know those nights where you wake up in the middle of the night and you try to go back to sleep, and your mind decides it's time to sort through 500 problems. And the result is you can't fall asleep. You're not with the happy people who are nicely sleeping in all the houses on your block, or in your neighborhood, or in your city, or wherever you happen to live. So this speaks to a certain subset of maybe depressive tendencies that we can have that are associated with troubles. Things that keep us bound and keep us separated from the things that we wish we could be doing instead. The analog here is a stone dropped into the sea versus the boats full of happy people floating over the top of it, as if they're not even there. Moving on, next we're asked, when does the action take place? And I imagine it, for no particular reason, as the morning, shortly after sunrise, the water's calm, which is rare during the day. Usually that's when the waves start and the wind is blowing. But it's not night because we know that the boats are visible to somebody on the shore. And the fact that the speaker refers to them as small, like midges, means that if it were dark, it'd be very difficult to see them. And the boats are visible and they are plentiful. And this is like a resolution made manifest in my mind, as if the speaker decided, today is the day. It's morning, today is the day I rid myself of these troubles and cast them into the sea. And the speaker wakes up, before the sun comes up, maybe it's just cresting the horizon, just enough to light the shore, the early morning boarders are out there, and the speaker walks down to the shore and finally does the thing. Finally does this thing that they've been meaning to do, that they went to sleep thinking about for who knows how long, and finally decided enough is enough. The next question is, where is the speaker? Well, I'd say at first, they're walking down towards the water. That's my understanding of the first stanza of the two stanzas in this poem. And finally, they end up close enough to the water or on the water, maybe out on a dock 
or something like that so as to drop the speaker's troubles into the deep. And the last question that the UNC Chapel Hill Writing Center asks us to explore is why does the speaker choose now to speak? Well, as I've said, like all of us, the speaker has troubles. The speaker has challenges and hurdles and burdens and weights, just like we all do. And also, like all of us, we don't speak of our troubles all the time. We don't want to burden others with them. This probably speaks to some of you, as it does to me. We don't want to be a burden on the people that care about us. There are plenty of people that would be happy to help us with things. Perhaps we're embarrassed. Perhaps we recognize that they have their own challenges and we don't want to make their life more difficult. But we don't often talk about the troubles that we have. We hold them inside and we attempt to deal with them ourselves. And sometimes we are successful and sometimes we're not. And I suspect that the reason the speaker is speaking now is that the speaker is finally strong enough, bold enough, and actually doing something that the speaker probably has wanted to do for some time. Nobody wants to hold on to their troubles. Nobody wants to be burdened by them and dragged down into the deep themselves with them. They want to be rid of them. And yet, perhaps another way to read this is a prescription for a future action. Because both the first and the second stanzas, the only two actually, begin with the phrase, I will take my trouble. One way to read this perhaps is earlier in time than I'm imagining. Perhaps this is not the morning of. Perhaps this is the night before where the speaker is maybe psyching themselves up to do what needs to be done. I will take my troubles tomorrow and I will put them into a cloth, a blue cloth, and I will drop them into the sea. And they will sink from view and I will look out on the water and I will see all the happy people and I will finally be free of them. To be finally rid of those burdens. And that's a little less wonderful a thought, right? Because that means there's still room for the speaker to back out. This is an imagined dream at this point, potentially. And the speaker still has yet to perform these actions. Um, perhaps even in this situation, the speaker's on, I don't know, a therapist's couch, examining with that therapist what they know needs to be done, and someone is helping to coach them through it. But regardless of how you look at this, this is somebody who has troubles, has burdens, has hurdles and weights and things that are weighing them down, and they want to be free of them. And don't we all? Don't we all have things that we want to be free of and that we don't want to weigh us down anymore? So regardless of the setting of this poem, it's much, much more than just a rock dropped into some water described in eloquent sentences. Right? This is, this is a lesson. This is a, a prescription. This is a roadmap for us to be free of our own. So as we close today's episode, my thought process is what are my troubles? Right? What but what burdens me? What holds me back? What do I feel drags me down that I can take and package in a blue cloth and walk down to the water and be rid of? So let us take our troubles and imagine what we might do with them. And then, perhaps, a similar prescription is in order for our troubles. And that is what we ought to do. Until next time, I'm Matthew Monroe. This is Quotations. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please subscribe in your favorite podcast app or visit me at quotationspod.com to download and listen. Please also take a moment to recommend the podcast to a friend. That's a huge help. You can tweet at me at quotationspod. Send me an email to quotationspod at gmail.com. Find me on Instagram at quotationspod or join the conversation on Facebook at quotationspod. 
I look forward to hearing from you, welcome your feedback, and thanks as always for listening.